Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right, this is Black Francis. This is a joke, and I, I got this joke from uh, Joey Santiago. Okay, uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra who? Come on. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from the Frank Stanton Studios in Los Angeles, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week was indeed from Black Francis of rock and roll heroes, The Pixies. And my middle namesake. <laughs> and coming up, director Terry Gilliam, Charles Dickens' toothpick, the coolest robbery ever, blistering guitar god Cite, and a cupcake Brendan actually likes. Believe it. But first, time for small talk. So, Rico, the big headline this week, you couldn't avoid it. Tiger Woods caught sexting Joe Lieberman. It's true. No, it's not. No, it's I'm, not. I'm just kidding. But for just a second, like every newspaper editor in America was quietly thanking God Pretty for the stuff. early Christmas present. <laughs> Meanwhile, for actual news you may not believe is true, we spoke to our colleagues at Marketplace. Rod Abid, senior producer of the Marketplace Morning Report, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Charles Dickens' toothpick has just sold at auction in New York, and it sold for $9,150. To who? Strangely enough, the buyer does not want to be identified. (laughs) How much do you want to bet it's the guy who has George Washington's teeth? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Senior producer of Marketplace Money, Deb Clark, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Okay, this probably reflects my loathing of Christmas. I do everything. (laughs) Is this a bah humbug story? Kind of. I do everything I can to avoid holiday shopping. So Walmart has a twisted idea. You can order online, which is great, right? Avoid the queues. Sounds convenient. And then you get to pick it up at a Walmart store. What? (laughs) Yeah, isn't that crazy? Especially during the holidays. (laughs) Why don't they just ship it to Grand Central Station? It's like sending things to Mecca during the Hajj. Stacey Vanek-Smith, senior reporter at Marketplace. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, uh, President Obama this weekend is going to be appearing on a holiday wrestling special. You're kidding. No, he's got a message for the troops. He's going to be broadcasting. I thought he was going to take the opportunity to, you know, work out, work some policy issues out. Yeah, they're going to settle this healthcare debate once and for all. You thought you were going to take down healthcare, Joe Lieberman. Now I'm going to take down you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a surfer riding a 10-foot wave of booze. Tubular. First, the history. This week back in 1968, the biggest heist in Japanese history went down. Now, if you or your dinner guests are from Japan, you will surely know about this. Here's Michelle Philippi to tell the rest of the world the story. Picture this. You're an employee at one of Japan's largest banks, and you and some co-workers are given a simple task. Deliver 300 million yen to one of the bank's clients. You're driving over with the money in a company car when a motorcycle cop pulls you over. The cop tells you that your boss, the bank manager, just had his house blown up, and that whoever did it may have planted dynamite inside the car you're sitting in. You'd get out of the car, right? And when smoke started billowing from it, you'd run, right? Well, that's what happened on December 10th, 1968. Except the cop was actually a robber in disguise. He had created the smoke with a flare, and then he hopped in the car, 
and drove off with 300 million yen. What followed was the largest manhunt in Japanese history. 170,000 cops amassed a list of over 100,000 suspects. Even the country's most famous detective got involved. He'd solved an infamous kidnapping the year before. Could he solve the heist of the century? Answer, nope. No one was ever convicted of the robbery. And even though the statute of limitations passed in 1975, the perpetrator has never confessed. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Mike Jin. He is the owner and a part-time bartender at the Far Bar, a revered bar in Little Tokyo, downtown Los Angeles. So, Mike, you heard the history. What drink did that inspire you to make? What we call the uh, Little Tokyo Fuzz Screw Bomb. The Little Tokyo Fuzz Screw Bomb. I like the name. It sounds like a zany dance album. <laughs> that, that too. Uh, there's a, you know, a, a famous drink called the Fuzzy Screw and then also the Saki Bomb and trying to combine the two to create the drink. Okay. The police being part of this, they're often known as the Fuzz and and screw because, in a sense, they were screwed by the fuzz. Exactly. So how do you do it? How would you make it at home? Uh, we used a three-quarter ounce of, of peach schnapps mm-hmm. uh, along with three-quarters ounce of soju. Shake it with ice to chill it and pour it into a shot glass. Okay. And then uh, you would fill a pint glass with a Japanese beer. You take two chopsticks and lay them across <laughs> the rim of the pint glass uh-huh. and separate them as far as possible, but tight enough so that you can set the uh, shot glass on top of the chopsticks. Man, this sounds like it actually takes hand-eye coordination. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a little bit of work, but it's well worth it. Okay, go ahead. So once you have that shot glass on top of the chopsticks, the, the tradition is to pound on the table, and as you're pounding, the chopsticks slowly separate. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the shot glass falls into your uh, beer. I love it. And so it's almost like the sake disappears like the criminal in the story. <laughs> All right. So, Brendan, it's hard not to think that this crime was unbelievably cool. Pretty slick. It is, but it's not a victimless crime. Like, the, the money that that guy stole was actually intended as bonuses for Japanese factory workers. This is like their holiday bonuses? Their year-end bonuses, yeah. All right, that's not cool, but what would be cool yes. is if uh, somebody dressed up like a government regulator and went to Wall Street and maybe <laughs> did a little bit of bonus hijacking. <laughs> Good Christmas for everybody. Uh, of course, if you're a Wall Streeter listening right now, we're just kidding. And you can make a donation tax-deductible to me at our new website, dinnerpartydownload.com. And Brendan, too. Merry Christmas, Brendan. Bah humbug. Our guest of honor this week is Terry Gilliam. He was a founding member of Monty Python. He has since gone on to make a bit of a name for himself as a filmmaker with Brazil, 12 Monkeys, The Fisher King, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. His new film is called The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. It opens Christmas week. And Terry, welcome. Hello. This movie is about the storyteller who's telling these very old-fashioned, fanciful stories and nobody in the modern world wants to listen. It begs us to think that that is you somehow, Mr. Gilliam. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Uh, I think any film director would probably be happy to be as uh, successful as George Lucas or Steven Spielberg in reaching these massive, massive audiences. And it doesn't really happen, so it's very easy to get 
lost in self-pity and write films like Dr. Parnassus. This is a result of self-pity? You're going to go on record? Yeah, craven self-pity. I was feeling old, unloved, forgotten, and I just fed off that. And I have a wonderful film as a result of it. Now we wait to see if it's going to be successful, because if it isn't, then I'm going to sink into a deeper depression. Really, you care? If I mean, your, your movies are so personal, and they seem to be done with a sense of, like, screw it, I'm going all the way. Do you really care if people embrace it or not? Yeah, I really am. I like when people see my movies and come out and, you know, the world has changed a little bit for them. I'm not just doing it for myself. I mean, by the end of it, I don't even watch the movies. I'm truly sorry that I inflicted them upon the world. But before that moment of revelation, I want as many people as possible to see it and love my movies. Well, let me ask you this then. If, if you are Dr. Parnassus, one of the things that happens in the movie is he makes a deal with the devil. He gets immortality in exchange for his daughter. Who is the devil? Or what is the devil? Oh, the devil is that moment when you're depressed, when you're feeling weak, and you do something that you'll be ashamed of for the rest of your life. The times that I've actually made compromises in my movies, those are the moments I feel I, talk, I listen to the devil. Well, I've been thinking, sir, that um, you know, not many people are attracted to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Well, forgive me, but I, I, I have a couple of solutions to your problems. One, I was thinking of, you know, changing the style of the show. And two, I would um, change the audience, perhaps. Change? Yeah, but in, in my opinion, I'd change both. Change the show? Who the freaking hell do you think you are? We have two standard questions on the show. The first is, uh, what question should we not ask you at a dinner party? <laughs> Why don't people like your movies, Terry? Do people actually ask you that? Yeah, I think they think I'm successful and it's the only way they can cut me off at the knees. They break my heart every time. It just hurts. Because the thing is, it's not like you haven't made hits. No, my, my run has been very, very good. Even the ones that do less when they come out do incredibly well in the long term, something like Fear and Loathing. But why do you have this sort of reputation as being somebody that's, you know, plagued by disaster? Because the press is lazy. No comment. <laughs> I'm one of the, the most successful filmmakers out there, but I've got this reputation, which in a strange way I kind of enjoy because it keeps these really crap scripts from being sent to me. All right, our second and final question. Tell us something we don't know. Here's a really interesting thing that I just found out the other day. Uh, in Dr. Parnassus, the end scene takes place with Parnassus selling toys to children. Now, that scene was based on Georges Méliès, the famous silent filmmaker, who, in his dotage, had run out of money and opened a little stall outside of one of the train stations in Paris selling toys to children. Yeah. I found out the train station outside of which his stall stood was... Mount Parnasse, Mount Parnassus. Whoa! Oh, babe! Oh, spooky! And ladies and gentlemen, you can hear the whole interview with Terry Gilliam talking about Monty Python and lots of other stuff on our new website, dinnerpartydownload.com. And by the way, congratulations, Rico. That's the only discussion anyone will ever hear about this film where they don't mention that it's Heath Ledger's last performance. You're welcome. Way to go. So we've met our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we see what's going on in the world of food. So Rico, I was drinking a bit, but I believe I did see you at our office party, our office Christmas party. I was at the office party, and did yes, you, you were drinking they... a bit. <laughs> did you see that row of, of hockey pucks? There were cupcake-like objects at our party. Lasagna cupcakes showed up in our house, taunting me. 
at our party. Because you like lasagna. So, but you do not like cupcakes. I, I had to get to the bottom of this, so I found Matt Poli, the chef and owner of Heirloom, a catering company in Los Angeles, and I asked him, where did you get the idea for these things that I'm eating? We called it lasagnettes in the beginning, and uh, it was our way of utilizing 100% of all of our product. You've got three portions of pork left. How are you going to resell that? Or how are you going to reuse that? So we make these little individual lasagnas that essentially you pull them out of the thing and it's a cupcake. When does a lasagna stop being a lasagna? You know what? As long as there's pasta and cheese in it, we're rolling with it. We've done a confit sturgeon lasagna cupcake, beaten white balsamic. I have to admit it. This is one of the things I came here to tell you is I think I had the wild boar bolognese. Yeah. It was exquisite. And that is comfort food. That's the Aritz, like grandma-style lasagna. You know, that's how every grandma made it. Maybe your grandma made that. My grandma lived in Trenton. We didn't have wild boar. My grandma definitely didn't make that. Unfortunately, I grew up on Tyson chicken nuggets and french fries, you know? So what do you think it is about them that people love once they encounter them? Well, it's lasagna you can eat with your hands. And not to mention they're fun. I mean, we have a, we did a Halloween party this last year. Hundreds of kids running around eating squid ink pasta stuffed with cheddar and smoked mac and cheese lasagnas, these orange and black lasagna cupcakes, and parents scarfing them down, kids scarfing them down, kids wearing like Tyrannosaurus Rex outfits. You actually get to my point, which is adults were racing with kids to get these cupcakes. This is why I'm scared about cupcakes. I think they make us think like children, and then we forget to do the real work that we need to do in society. Well, that's, I agree with that, but at the same time, especially in times like this, you know, people are looking for those simple, a nice salad, a lasagna, and that's why sort of pasta's caught on for us. Let's face it, besides nail salons and like weapons, cupcakes are the only industry growing in this country. <laughs> cupcakes are going, and uh, we're kind of going to ride those coattails. What about this? I was thinking a dessert of a lasagna cupcake, where it's like a big pan cupcake. I don't even know where you're going with that. It'd be like layers of like cupcake and cream and stuff like that, and it would look like a lasagna, and then you'd dice it up. But it's actually cake. Wow, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Genius. I thought so. I mean, I think there's something there. Uh, On, <laughs> they would probably, to cake? Lasagna cake. I think they'd move a lot more cake if they came up with these names. Apparently, think, people can't get enough of this I stuff. don't think restaurants really have a lot of trouble moving cake. I didn't really think of that. That's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Did we mention we have a brand new website? It's at dinnerpartydownload.com. Or if you're partial to social networks, find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks to Nihar Patel and Alassi Michelis for helping us set the table. We leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. Put on your seatbelt. The band right. is called Cite. The song is called Careful with That Hat. And it's from their forthcoming album, Dream Get Together. Enrico, they were nice enough to uh, make it available at our website. Did I mention we have a new website? Which, by the way, is new. <laughs> bon appetit.
Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newman. Gentlemen, LAPD. I'm going to have to ask you to evacuate the studio. We have reason to believe your microphones are made of dynamite. Oh, I'm sorry. Do we look like we were born yesterday? Yeah, nice costume, Ponch. We're not falling for this one again. <laughs>